0: Let me begin. Let me begin. Am I on? Can you hear me now? Can you guys hear me back there? All right. Uh, let me encourage you with something. As you, as you come to Worship each Sunday, um, don't make Daniel Cresswell drag you kicking and screaming into exuberant worship of Jesus. Okay? Um, I like my pockets just as much as you do. But in worship. Of the great King Jesus, and come out. There we go. There we go. Come out, right? Did you hear me on that? Take your pockets out. Um, you can clap. You can lift your hands. They are biblical expressions of which Jesus is worthy. Dang, I'm loud. Am I as loud out there as I'm up here? I guess God wants you guys to hear that last part really well. Um, so, so come with your pump primed. Expect to meet Jesus here and worship him, okay? Don't get warmed up on the last song, okay? Uh, It's for him. It's all for him. He's worthy. Get ready. Worship exuberantly, okay? Let Daniel Creswell be the the passive laid-back guy compared to you. (laughs) This should be real interesting next week. Uh, There's a need I need to let you know of as well, Um, our church, uh, you all know the expression, and many of you live, many of us live the expression paycheck to paycheck, right? You know what I'm talking about? Northwake is an offering to offering church, okay? We, we don't have a big bank account, and we don't have a lot of um, deep pockets that bail us out. It's a lot of little gifts faithfully, steadily given. When you, when you do not, when you're not faithful in your part, uh, we get perilously close to the edge, and we keep uh, enough money in the bank for three months of our, of our staff's salary. That's, that's the bottom line. That's what we have to keep there. We rarely have more. We try not to have less. Uh, right now, we're almost down to about half of that. Okay. Uh, so we're way below what our um, elders and trustees feel is wise for us. Um, so if, if you have not been on pace with your giving or if you sense that God has enabled you to do more, now, now would be a really good, really good time, okay, to be gladly generous towards the work of this particular church. Um, so our, our needs are great. Um, but, you know, the, our, the reason God allows us these places is so that we'll pray for our daily bread. You don't pray for your daily bread when you've got a silo full of it, Okay. Now time to pray for the daily bread of your church or daily needs of the church. and um, I just wonder if there are some of you this morning who will commit right now on the spot to pray at least weekly for the needs of our church financially. Would you be willing to raise your hand if you'd be willing to make that commitment? Okay. Now God's going to hold you to that, all right? At least weekly. Some of you, it's day. Well, we remember to pray for us daily, and we need that right now. But um, let's make that a matter of prayer right now and also pray for our hearts to receive the word well this morning. Okay, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for putting us in a place this morning when we know that we need you. We need your grace in our lives. We need your provision. We couldn't last a day without you. And so as your people, as your children, we come to you as our Father and, and we say, Lord, give us our daily bread in our homes in our families, and here together as your people gathered to worship you, meet our needs. We ask for the full restoration of, of our um, resources, our reserves at this level that, that we have deemed wise. Lord, have mercy on us in that way. We trust you for that, and pray that you give us glad hearts as we are part of that. And Lord, now we open the word, our sustenance for our souls. The thing that makes us live in the Spirit's power, different than the world, attractive to the world, delightful to the world, and honoring to your Son. Uh, use your word towards that, and now we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. Whereas you can open, open up your Bibles to Matthew 20, the back end, that's where we'll start uh, today as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Matt Woodley, writes about um, the owner of the New York Yankees. His name is uh, George Steinbrenner. If you're a baseball person at all, you know uh, Mr. Steinbrenner. He is the epitome of a ruthless, domineering, egotistical approach to leadership. He's nicknamed the boss. Steinbrenner canned 14 general managers, fired 25 team managers. One got the ax Four times, routinely blasted his players, even calling one high-priced superstar a fat toad. Everyone knew that Steinbrenner was in control. On one occasion, after team manager Joe Torrey requested a visit to his pregnant wife, Steinbrenner let him go, but warned, after the baby is born, your um, hind parts are mine. That's Steinbrenner's approach to leadership. And there was a There was a New York Times article recently that said, we need and even want take charge leaders like Steinbrenner. According to leadership psychology, recent research on status and power suggests brashness, entitlement, and ego are essential components of any competent leader. And when you're in power... The Times article says you want to stay there. You're expected to live your role as a dominant, decisive, absolute authority and to internalize it. In other words, Matt Woodley says we expect leaders to sniff and get high on the influence of power. And he says that's why Jesus proves to be such a conundrum. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he says, and now especially in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus at times acts like a decisive, absolute authority. He's the Lord. He's knocking over tables. He's cursing innocent fig trees. He's refusing to answer direct questions. But then he subverts expectations with his sweet tenderness, riding on a lowly donkey, embracing people with disabilities, inviting tax collectors and prostitutes to join him. It says in Matthew 21, Jesus displays a strange combination of abject humility and divine lordship. And he says people don't know what to do with him. They keep demanding of Jesus, what kind of leader are you? You're a nobody, and yet you act like the world's boss. Who put you in charge around here? Just who do you think you are? And from the heart of Matthew 21 today, that question takes a slightly different angle on the lips of the people that are going to watch what we're going to watch today. They just say, who is this man? Who is this? And that's really the question for us all. Jesus would, would put it differently another time. He'd say, who do you say that I am? Who is this, Jesus? And just as important, Does my life make sense in light of the answer to that question? Is my life a witness, a testimony? Does it give evidence of the answer to that question? Well, let's look starting at the back end of chapter 20 and look at a series of encounters with Jesus and see what they reveal about him and about about our lives. So they're leaving Jericho, and a great crowd is following Jesus and the disciples. And behold, it says, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, chances are these two blind men were beggars. What else could you be in the first century? There was no Braille on you know, inside public buildings. There were no seeing-eye dogs. They would be led out to a public street, set down, and in this case, the street that Jesus was traveling on, and they would beg. And somehow, they hear um, that Jesus is passing by. And they have a, a flicker of hope that even the disdain of the crowd, telling them to be quiet, cannot silence. They just they cry out all the more. One writer, uh, Jesus, Jesus then has a question for them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And one writer put the revelation that would come through their, uh, their question, the answer to Jesus' question this way. He says, if they just asked for alms, for money, then they just thought Jesus was a common man. But if they asked to be healed, then they thought he was the Messiah. And so when they ask for healing, and when they call him the son of David, which was virtually the Jewish equivalent of the title of Messiah, um, and they call him Lord, because in Matthew's gospel, only believers call Jesus Lord in Matthew's gospel. When you put those things together, Jesus knows they have faith in him, and faith always seems to get to Jesus. He can't resist it. And so Jesus does a clearly messianic deed, something only the Messiah or that the Messiah was really expected to do. He opens the eyes of the blind. Way back in the Old Testament, way back in Isaiah, when it talks about the era that the Messiah is going to usher in, it says the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped." This is the last detailed report of any healing in in Matthew's gospel. And it has Messiah stamped all over it. Over and over again, Jesus is revealing himself to be the Messiah. The, The anointed king sent by God to be the rescuer of his people from their sin and ultimately from their suffering. That's who the Messiah is. And so Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah, but he's also showing himself to be extraordinarily compassionate as that Messiah. Um, Time and time again, when Jesus encounters someone in great need, it might be blind beggars like this, it might be a mom or a dad with a suffering child, or it might just be a crowd that's hungry. Jesus' compassion when it's expressed in the New Testament, always drives him to act on behalf of the people who are crying out to him. And so you need to know that if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior, the Lord, the King, sent by God for you, then this is how Jesus feels when your suffering is at its greatest. Greatest. He has compassion for you when you cry out to him in faith. And probably some of you this morning feel like that's where you are. In the deepest valley you've ever been in. And you need to know that Jesus feels compassion for you. And he, if you'll cry out to him in faith, he'll act on that compassion on your behalf. Jesus is the compassionate king, the Messiah, the rescuer sent by God to free you from your sin and one day from your suffering. Really, the big question is, would you, if you never have, would you today place your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the sent king for you to bear your sins and one day to free you from your suffering? you know there there is lots of really significant cool stuff i could recommend to you okay, that i could teach you about i i am now a trained and experienced professional in rebooting your ipad in the middle of a really important talk okay <laughs> i can school you in that have experience in that but there is nothing that I can commend to you more happily, more urgently, than that if you're just on the the edge of things trying to figure it out, nothing, nothing am I more confident of than that you should happily and fully trust Jesus to be the Savior that you need. And to follow him as, as Messiah, the King sent by God. Nothing matters more than that. I love the way Bill Hybels says it. He says it's the greatest way to live and the only way to die, trusting Jesus as your Messiah. So, who is this Jesus? He's the compassionate Messiah. Does your life make sense of that? Does it, does it bear witness to that? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you following him in increasing compassion? on people who are in need. Would you say that a compassion like Jesus for those who suffer marks you? If it doesn't, then you're really not following very well, are you? Because that's who Jesus is shown to be here, the compassionate Messiah. Now, at this point, as we turn the page from chapter 20 into chapter 21, we are beginning the last week of Jesus' life. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, the remaining eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, all take place in this last week of Jesus' life. Philip Yancey says that, Of the biographies I have read, few devote more more than 10% of their pages to the subject's death including biographies of men like Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, who died violent and politically significant deaths. But the Gospels devote nearly a third of their length to the climactic last week of Jesus' life. We are approaching the big idea of the Gospels, of the Bible. It's all pointing to this week, this week, that we're going to look at between now and next Easter as we walk through these last eight chapters. This is what it's all about. Okay? So this is how it starts. When they drew, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. And a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Now, there's a lot of detail about how Jesus intends to get into Jerusalem. To make his last entrance into Jerusalem. Why all the detail? What's up with the donkey? Okay. Why is Jesus so intent that this should be his mode of transportation to get him into the city. Now, the donkey is a sure sign of Jesus' humility. He doesn't say, you're going to go in, you're going to find a white charger, a stallion. Get that one for me. He says, get a donkey. It's a humble beast of burden. It's the kind of beast that would have been at Jesus' birth some 30 years before. Matt Woodley comments on Jesus' mode of transportation, saying it's a a strange fusion of authority and humility. On the one hand, the donkey was a beast of burden for the working poor. Unlike snorting war horses, donkeys epitomized ordinariness and even powerlessness. And then he says, but watch carefully. I love the way he says this. Because Jesus, he says, will take our standard concepts of power and authority, line them up like fish on a table, gut them, repack them with new meaning, and bring them back to life. See, all these details about finding donkeys and one of them being a young donkey and bringing it back and all that, it's, the point is not that Jesus was carefully... It's not just that he was carefully planning his entrance to Jerusalem. Rather, it's that Jesus, without wavering, is following an ancient plan. The Father's plan. For how he's going to reveal his identity to the Jewish people in the city who have been paying attention to these things now for centuries. Okay? Verse 4 and 5 say, This took place... All the details about the donkey, it took place to fulfill what was written, what was spoken rather by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now historians tell us that kings did ride donkeys from time to time during times of peace, but This quote from Isaiah and Zechariah, especially, Zechariah 9, attaches messianic significance to this act. Jesus is revealing who he is by the way he comes into the city. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling the part of the Messiah, the servant, the humble servant king, with his choosing of his mode of transportation. It's like a a parable that you act out so everybody gets it. Dale Bruner adds there's more to this revelation. There's this, You notice back in in the first verse, it it mentions that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. And and back in Jewish time, that was um, the expectation of where the Messiah would come from. And so, Dale Bruner says, even Matthew's geographical reference here is saying, here he is. Okay, This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one you've been hoping in. And Luke tells us, it's a fascinating little detail, that from this vantage point, um, the Mount of Olives, as I understand it, overlooks the city. It's got a panoramic view of the city. And from there, as Jesus prepared to enter the city for the last time, to give his life there, he wept for the city. In, in Luke 19, in Luke's telling of this, it says, When, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept. Over it, and Philip Yancey was reflecting on this and he says the triumphal entry has about it an aura of, of almost ambivalence, he says. He says, as I read all the accounts together, what stands out to me now is the, the slapstick nature of the affair. I imagine a Roman officer galloping up to check on the disturbance and he's, he's attended processions in Rome where they do it right. The conquering general in Rome sits in a chariot of gold with stallions straining at the reins and wheel spikes flashing in the sunlight. And behind him, officers in polished armor display the banners captured from vanquished armies. And at the rear comes a ragtag procession of slaves and prisoners in chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. But he says in Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up the ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. And when the officer looks for the object of their attention, he spies a forlorn figure, weeping, riding on no stallion or chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey, a borrowed coat draped across its backbone, serving as his saddle. He says, yes, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome and not the kind that impressed crowds in Jerusalem for long either. What manner of king is this? Jesus is choosing carefully to present himself as the Messiah. Yet he is a humble, obedient Messiah. Does your life match up with that? Would the people at work describe you as humble and obedient to the authority that God's placed over you, really, to to God? Do you, as Jesus has just taught us a couple weeks ago, do you take the low place? Are you amongst the lasts? Or the firsts. Jesus is presenting himself as a humble, obedient Messiah. Does your life make sense in light of that? Does it speak of that to the people that know you? Well, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And Jesus sat on them. Now, clearly, Jesus is in control here. The disciples obey him. The strangers in the city obey him. Even, and this is almost miraculous if you know anything about this, even the donkey obeys him. And this is, this is pretty stunning stuff if you've ever ridden a donkey. Um, if you come from a small town, I, I grew up in a small town, and, and uh, now I live up north of here in Youngsville, um, and we, we, we do a lot of things up in Franklinton where our school is. Uh, there's a thing um, called donkey basketball, um, and you have to be from a small town to ever have experienced donkey basketball. Um, there's a whole lot of this in donkey basketball, and, uh, and a little bit more of this in donkey basketball and that's what I remember in high school I got to play donkey basketball as part of a fundraiser and I had a bruise right where that guy got a bruise. (laughs) This horseshoe shaped thigh bruise um, from playing donkey basketball. But look, if I'm coming into town as the king the last mode of transportation I'm picking is a donkey that's never been ridden. Unbroken donkey. Um, And yet and yet everything is under Jesus' control. Everything that happens this week, this last week, including the cross, is under Jesus' control. And the verses go on in, in verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's why we call it Palm Sunday Sunday. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And uh, D.A. Carson says, for those with eyes to see it, Jesus was not only proclaiming his Messiahship and his fulfillment of scripture, but showing the kind of peace-loving approach he was now making to the city. And the people are excited about it. They're there by the thousands. Some say the city swelled to maybe five or six times its normal size because this was the Passover. And people traveled from all over to return to Jerusalem for the Passover. And now they're they're at the gate. This poor rabble is at the gate of the city. And they're wondering, could this be their king? And they hailed Jesus with palm branches, and John, John tells us that in his account of this. And it's a symbol of Jewish nationalism as they chafed under Roman rule, and they shouted Hosanna. It, it really, at this point, meant just praise, praise to God. But it had a history of being a cry for rescue. And deliverance, and this crowd is wondering, could this Jesus who just raised Lazarus from the dead, who just healed the blind men, could he be their long-awaited king who would liberate them from the Roman oppression? And in verse 10, when Jesus actually entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And and that's really the question of the day. Who is this Jesus, right? And does your life make sense in light of the answer to that? You know, they were expecting Arnold on a Harley or, or Patton on a tank They were not expecting meet Jesus on a donkey. They're expecting a military, at least a political conquest, and Jesus came this time to fight a spiritual battle. He doesn't come on a war horse to overthrow the Romans. He comes humble on a donkey to die for them, to set them free. And so in the process, Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be tried, and he's going to be convicted. He's going to be beaten and mocked. And five days later, from from this moment, they're they're going to execute Jesus with a death unfit for anyone but slaves and thieves on a cross. So he enters as a humble king. In Mark's account, he even offers to return the donkey when he's done with it. It was definitely not what they were expecting What are you expecting of Jesus? What do you think it means for you to follow him? Does it mean health and wealth and power? Are you expecting things to go better with Jesus? And on the one hand, they do. So many things are so much richer and fuller and better in every way when you follow Jesus. But there's other times when things don't go better from our perspective. Peter says, "To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in His steps." It's hard to say it any more clear than that. To follow Jesus means to suffer. We follow a humble king who made his grand entrance on a donkey and died a criminal's death on a cross just a handful of days later. He has humbled himself for you. And now you are to follow him. As Jesus just taught us in the previous chapter, that means that you're like a busboy, waiting tables. You're like a slave with no rights, who just exists to serve others, Jesus taught us. It is to put others' interests above your own. You know, the palm branches, the shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David, they all point that Jesus is unveiling his Messiahship. He doesn't tell anybody to be quiet anymore. He doesn't heal the blind men and say, don't tell anybody. It's all coming out in the open. Crowds, could be tens, maybe 100,000 people are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Depending on what events happen on what day, some scholars hold that on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, on this day, that was the day that that the priests were selecting the lamb that they would slaughter on Passover. And so Jesus is both exalted king and sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the humble king coming on a young donkey, ushering in a new era of peace with God as he fulfills the Father's plan in obedience to him. Does your life make sense in light of that? So, we see that Jesus is, on the one hand, the humble, compassionate king. But on the other hand, you don't want to mess with Jesus. Okay? Um, watch what happens next in verse 12. Jesus enters the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. You know, the meek guy on the donkey is going ballistic in the temple. Now, when Jesus focused his anger on the temple, here's a, a recreation of what the temple might have looked like in Jesus' day. And the area that he was is in this outer area right here, it's called the Court of the Gentiles, and it's given over to commerce and the selling of um, animals and offerings that the people needed uh, to be able to, to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. And so there are all kinds of vendors out there, um, it's like a flea market, selling, the people would bring their money, buy what they needed for worship, and, and offer it there uh, to the Lord. To focus his anger on the temple is to strike a blow at the political and economic and spiritual heart of the nation. It'd be like a political candidate throwing furniture around at the White House. Or a, a radical trashing the trading floor, throwing over monitors on the New York Stock Exchange. Or somebody going into the National Cathedral in DC and just flipping pews, knocking over altars. That's the place, the kind of impact that what Jesus was doing had culturally. It's interesting though, you notice? Nobody stops him. (laughs) Nobody messes with Jesus at this point in time. Not the religious leaders, not the temple guard. Nobody dares stop Jesus in this moment of righteous anger. This is not our modern day Jesus. There was a, a blog I ran across one time and it was the title of it was What Jesus Wouldn't Do. It okay. says so Jesus wouldn't lie. Jesus wouldn't steal. Jesus wouldn't cheat. Jesus wouldn't cover his neighbor's goods or wife. Jesus wouldn't judge. Jesus wouldn't place blame. Jesus wouldn't instill fear. Our blogger never read Matthew 21, okay? Because Jesus is judging and he's blaming, and I guarantee you there are some scared pigeon sellers in the court of the Gentiles on that day. Matt Woodley says it's always tempting to reduce Jesus to one-dimensional qualities like compassionate or accepting. But this vignette reminds us that Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. He also displayed incredible strength and authority. The word he says for drove out in verse 12 is the same word Matthew uses when Jesus drove out a demon. He says it's easy to drive out one person, but Jesus drove out an entire strip mall filled with happy and and profitable vendors. When we say Jesus is a meek, and loving servant king, which he most certainly is. Whatever we mean by that, we cannot mean that as a result he tolerates or overlooks sin, especially not in his father's house by people that profess to follow him. So why does the meek and gentle donkey rider go ballistic? Um, number of reasons. Greed and corruption have invaded the people of God. And their place of worship. They were changing money in the temple, enabling worshipers to buy what they needed for sure, but also changing that into a virtual flea market where greed and corruption were likely everywhere. That's one reason. It had become, according to Jesus, a prayerless religion. The temple had, by implication of what he says, ceased to be a house of prayer. Something else had captured the people's hearts and hopes. Commerce had, profiteering, those kinds of things had usurped prayer. And as the people's hearts went, so went the temple. Now we are always on the edge of being vulnerable to this accusation of prayerlessness. Um, It stalks the church like few um, temptations that I know. Here's, let me just give you maybe an illustration, okay? Gregory Curtis has been recruiting people to come to a remarkable prayer gathering in the city of Raleigh Tuesday night. Um, there'll be 2,000 Christians from our city, over 2,000 Christians gathered to spend the evening in prayer from over 100 churches. And if you're troubled by the fact that the church is divided, uh, I'm supposed to pray at that gathering. I am the, I'm probably the token white evangelical guy. There are They're African Americans and they're Hispanics. There's a guy from Iran and they, there are Pentecostals and Charismatics and, and me, okay? (laughs) Whatever I am, I'm there, okay? And so Gregory Curtis is our guy for this and he's been recruiting to get uh, 30 North Wakers to go uh, pray Tuesday night. Uh, He got 12 and he gave the rest of the seats away to other churches that needed them. I think he recruited for this at our men's retreat and uh, that may mean nothing but it may mean something and I I just know that we live on the edge of prayerlessness if your prayer life became the status quo for our church could our church be called a house of prayer So tonight at 6, we gather here to pray. That's probably enough about that. You know, there's also issues of exclusivity. The temple was intended to be a place for all peoples to gather. It had become a place where the Jewish people became exclusive and excluded people. Um, I don't know if you could roll all those together and give them a single label as to why Jesus was so upset with his people, especially in light of what he's going to teach us next week we might say the label is hypocrisy. People who make a show of fruit but in reality don't have any. Hypocrisy. I'll give you a great example. Um, There's a lot of products these days that are designed to imitate the real thing. There's plastic decking that looks like real wood. There's vinyl flooring that looks like ceramic tile. You can buy fake fur or jewelry or phony noses or hair pieces, whatever you want. Um, The purpose behind all these items is fairly obvious, but here's one that you may not be familiar with. It's called Spray-On Mud, and it's designed for use on the outside of your SUV. That way, it appears you use your expensive gas guzzler for more than taking the kids to soccer practice. Spray it on and friends might think you've just returned from a wilderness adventure. According to this, sales of the product are going well, particularly in America and in London where the concept originated. The inventor, uh, Colin Dove, says, if they want an authentic look, there's not a lot else they can do. There's not a lot of mud in, in London, he says. Apparently, $15 a can seems a reasonable price for the appearance of authenticity. What are you paying for the price of authenticity? Do you think that just because you're here, you're good? You're following Jesus because you showed up. You know, the meek guy on the donkey hates hypocrisy. And he won't countenance amongst those of us who say, we follow Jesus and we come here, and but we don't live it out there. You remember back in in Matthew 7, in that great sermon of Jesus, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that's in your own eye, Jesus says? Or how can you say to your brother, let let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a big log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I suppose at a whole nother level, Jesus is attacking, attacking the whole corrupt Temple system itself, and he's pointing us towards a new temple. 70 AD, this temple's going to collapse, and Jesus is pointing us towards a new one. And in Revelation chapter 21, John looks around the heavenly city and he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus The humble, compassionate king is not to be messed with. He will not tolerate hypocrisy amongst his people. And then we find out, uh, the next verse is that the blind and the lame, after he ran out all the vendors, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And when you couple the cleansing of the temple with the healing in the temple, Jesus is claiming to be greater than the temple. He's Lord over the temple. And when he receives this praise from these children, He's claiming something even greater. When they said to him, those leaders said, do you hear what these are saying, these children? Hosanna, son of David. And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus is citing the Old Testament one more time as the justification for his act. Actions and legitimizing the praise that the children were giving to him. And if you go back to Psalm 8, where that comes from, it's praise, it it teaches that God ordained praise for himself, for God, from infants and children. And so, in accepting their praise as his own, Jesus is laying claim to praise that's set apart and deserving of God himself. Jesus is saying, I'm God. Jesus is the compassionate king, the humble servant, the one greater than the temple, the Lord of all, the one worthy of praise to God himself. This is your Lord. This is your humble king that you say you follow. Does your life make sense in light of that? Does your life evidence that to people who look at you? Do they see Jesus changing you? It's interesting, at the end of the day, Jesus leaves town with only the 12. The crowds of thousands have already lost interest and returned to their daily routine. What does it mean for you to follow him when you leave here? What's the spirit prompting you right now? as you hear the word, and as you see Jesus for who he is. Will you bow with me in prayer, please? Jesus, we we worship you, we exalt you, we adore you, and we acknowledge there's no one like you. And yet we confess that um, we are not as good as we need to be. We're not anywhere as good as we need to be letting you live through us. By your spirit, letting us represent you. Letting us honor you as we become like you. In your humility and in your compassion, in your humble obedience to the Father, all these things. So Jesus, have mercy on us now as we leave to... Honor you with our lives. We ask this in your matchless, great, exalted name. The name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, let's close with a time of just confession and exalting of Jesus.